How's it going, travelers? Welcome to Fantastical Faith, the podcast where I get a bunch of geeks together and try and find the little nuggets of truth within the realm of fiction. As always, I'm your host, Mike Atassi. Accio knowledge! That's not how that spell works, so we'll have to do it the old-fashioned way. What does the wizarding world teach us about God? With all the wizardry and witchcraft, can it even do that? As always, spoilers ahead. My guest today, who I so foolishly forgot to introduce, is Caleb Blum. He's a good friend and former youth pastor of mine. He's one of the most knowledgeable theologians I know, and he's just as much of a nerd as anyone else I've had on this show. I'm here joined today by my good friend, Caleb Blow. Doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing great today. Perfect day. It's a little cold outside, but it's not too bad. Um, looking forward to, to nerding out with you a little bit. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's half the fun of the podcast. Um, so I always ask uh, two questions whenever I uh, start these things. Uh, the first question is what, is, what draws you to fiction or fantasy as a genre? Yeah. Um, <laughs> how much time do you have? No. <laughs> but um yeah you know I, I think there's probably three three main things that draw me to uh fantasy particularly as a genre um first of all you know i think fantasy is an opportunity to explore things about our world in a context that is kind of removed from our daily reality and what i love about that is that it lets you examine ideas principles ethics actions within the framework of a different world. And so, you know, you can kind of examine these ideas on a more neutral playing field. Um, you know, you as a reader have to decide, uh, you know, do I approve of this action? Do I, do I disapprove of it? Um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, the second reason I love fantasy is because it is an outlet um, for writers and thinkers to create new things. Um, it's not a mystery that I'm a big Tolkien fan, and I, I really love his perspective on this. Um, you know, I'm a Christian, and, and, and this is kind of how he approaches it, that we are God's chief creation. And in that, we are, he believes we're called to be creative in our own lives in a way that honors our Father's creativity. Um, Tolkien, he called this uh, idea sub-creation. We're, we're sub-creators. And, um, you know, I just think that's a really profound and 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 useful way of thinking about fantasy. And, and that really leads me to the third reason I love fantasy. Um, and it's because I think there's actually a deeply um, apologetical aspect to all fantasy writing. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this a lot. He, he has this essay called uh, On Three Ways for Writing for Children, where he gets into some of his views around fantasy. And he has this line where he says um, that, that fairyland arouses a longing for he knows not what it stirs and troubles him with the dim sense of something beyond his reach and far from dulling or emptying the actual world gives the world a new dimension of depth and i i love this idea because it kind of touches on this this aspect that we all have longings we all long for something um and and i believe every person longs for something even beyond this world, I think everyone recognizes things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So you can take a piece of universally loved fantasy, whether that's Narnia, Lord of the Rings, you know, Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, even Marvel, and you can point to themes in these stories that everyone resonates with and resounds with, and, and, and you can tell them um, the longing you experience when you read these books or watch these films actually has a fulfillment. Let me introduce you to him. And so I think it's a wonderful opportunity to speak about Jesus to those who may be completely closed off to him. Um, 
and and there's just this this interesting segue to talk about things that are bigger than maybe what you would normally talk about um with a total stranger um yeah you know tolkien does this a lot uh lewis does this a lot um i, I don't know if you've read lord of the rings but um frodo has this dream in the house of tom bombadil and when he has this dream tolkien records it and, and there's this really uh, beautiful moment where uh, this is what tolkien writes he says uh, Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain, and growing stronger to torn the veil all to glass and silver, until at last it was rolled back, and a far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. And you know, in the story, Tolkien is obviously referencing a place in his world, Valinor, um, but as a Christian, you know, you read this, and as you read it, this sense of longing and hopefulness kind of um, boys up in your heart and makes you dream what it might be like to dwell in a place like that. Um, and as a Christian, you can say, actually, we believe we will dwell in a place like that one day. Um, we will actually dwell in the house of God forever, the new heavens and new earth. And so I think those are, you know, kind of in some three of the reasons I love fantasy and will we'll always, I think, enjoy it and, and, and be a, an advocate for reading uh, widely. My second question is a little less extensive, but um, what has been the most influential influential piece of media in your life and why? Yeah, it, you know, in terms of, of things that have been created by people and put out there to enjoy, um, you know, for me, it's going to be always Lord of the Rings uh, for some of the reasons I just mentioned. In addition, just to the fact that I, I still believe they're the best we have. I think they're the best piece of fantasy ever created. And, you know, as a Christian, I, I, I really do love the way that Tolkien incorporates his Christian worldview in a, in a subtle, but also very apparent way um, that makes these books a very rewarding series to read over and over again. In fact, I, I read these books every year. Uh, Harry Potter is probably a, probably a close second there, um, simply because I grew up during Harry Potter mania. And those are also books I'd, I probably read once every year or two. Um, although these days, <laughs> it's mostly on audiobook because of time constraints. I've, I've just got to listen to things. I don't have time to sit down and read like I used to. That's fair. Yeah. Plus, you know, Harry Potter's got all the seven books that you got to make it through. I did want to hit on mainly like mainly the controversy a lot that surrounds Harry Potter in the realm of Christianity. Um, obviously, back when the the movie or the not the games, sorry, the the books were first coming out and the movies were big, just a lot of controversy surrounding the idea of the inclusion of magic in these books and how it was teaching kids to you know like oh like it's magic so it's bad because the bible teaches against witchcraft and they're you know casting spells and painting it in a good light but also you have a clear distinction between light magic and dark magic but do you think there should even be a distinction between the two off of what the bible says about magic and like sorcery and whatnot yeah, uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I referenced that essay by C.S. Lewis a minute ago, um, uh, and he has got this great point in that essay where, uh, you know, when you're thinking of children especially, which Harry Potter is ultimately a children's series, you, you kind of want to ask this question of, what do I want my child to be exposed to? Um, and and, and C.S. Lewis has this great point where he says, you know, you want your child to have been exposed to uh, valiant knights, um, brave heroes, um so that when they get into the real world, they can recognize that sort of person. And at the same time, you want them to have been exposed to evil, you know, wizards or warlocks or whatever. And again, 
so that when they get into the real world, you know, obviously they're not going to meet a warlock, but but the, the, they may meet people who are, you know, operating in a wicked way or in a way that, um, you know, is deceptive um, and manipulative. And so, you know, his whole point there is, you know, when 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 somebody's reading uh, and they're in a in a fantasy world or you know in fairyland, um, it's a pretty safe place to learn about these things. But then there's a very strong application in in real life. And so I think you know when you ask this question about good versus evil magic, light versus dark magic, those sorts of things, I you know I think it really depends on um, what the author even means by magic. And so of course in Harry Potter, um, when J.K. Rowling talks about magic. She's obviously using this in um, very particular ways, in ways that are distinct from the kinds of magic you might see people doing in, in the real world. And everyone reading Harry Potter, or at least most everyone, recognizes this is made up, this is fantastical, this isn't meant to actually be something you can you know, aspire towards, although I think everyone's probably picked up a piece of wood and imagined what it would be like to uh, you know, be Harry Potter on his uh, 11th birthday there, getting that letter. I know that was me, at least as a kid. Um, and, and so, you know, I think you really have to read it for yourself and ask this question of, is the author using magic in a way that's appropriate, right? That's useful. You know, you know, for example, um, you know, in the Wheel of Time series, um, Robert Jordan writes, you know, this magic system, and there's actually two sources of magic, a male side to it and a female side to it. And the male side to magic in Wheel of Time has been corrupted and, and it's evil. And so even well-intentioned men can try to use this magic, but it always ultimately results in, in corruption and, and even corruption of the user, whereas, you know, the woman's side doesn't necessarily do that. And so, you know, uh, you know, as a reader, you've got to look at that and wonder and think to yourself, hmm, okay, you know, is this, does this make sense with my understanding of the world and how the world works? You know, that being said, you referenced just a second ago, the um, kind of magic panic. Uh, people have called that different things that happened in the late 90s, early thousands, especially centering around books like Harry Potter. Um, and, and I think it's really interesting. Um, I really do believe that the fears of quote unquote evil magic um, are really overblown when it comes to, to Harry Potter. You know, I as a Christian know that there are certainly uh, wicked and unbiblical ways of using magic. Um, and even within the realm of modern day fantasy, this is absolutely true. You, you do need to be careful, I think, um, and use wisdom when you're approaching a book that, that, that has magic in it. But then there's a very real sense in which magic is a reality of the world that we live in. And, and what I mean by this is that, um, you know, even in the Bible, you run into um, people that do what seems like magic, whether that be Pharaoh's court uh, magicians in, in the Exodus narrative, um, or, or particularly, you know, there's this very, very curious story um, in First Samuel 28, where Saul, the king of Israel, goes to find a, a medium. Um, which, which in the Hebrew is literally a, a necromancer, somebody who raises beings from the dead. And in this story, um, Saul and this necromancer um, literally draw forth the ghost and spirit of Samuel the prophet. Biblical scholars have, have spent a lot of time talking about this and a lot of time wondering what exactly is going on. But the point, at least, of the story is really clear. And that is that that Saul here is violating God's command from Leviticus 19, where it literally tells you, do not turn to necromancers or mediums. Do not seek them out or you'll make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And so there's a sense in which the Bible even is interacting with these ideas and saying, look, you ought to be able to recognize what is evil 
and call it as such. And you also ought to be able to recognize what is good and call it as such. And so I think, you know, for the Christian, we, we don't have to be afraid of encountering evil magic uh, in this sense, especially in fantasy writings, especially in a book where you can read it and, and make an assessment for yourself. Now, you know, as a parent, what do you do? I think it's wise for parents to go ahead and read books, you know, alongside their children and even ahead of time of their children. Uh, but I also think as a Christian, you know, we have victory in Christ. And so, you know, we don't have to be afraid of, you know, magic perverting our, our experience because we believe that God's spirit literally dwells within us. This is one of the reasons Christians, you know, have, have even practiced Halloween in the past to, to literally make a mockery of Satan and make a mockery of his evil spirits and say, you don't have victory over us. Jesus Christ has victory in the end. I think this question, I think the fear around it is, is certainly uh, overblown. I also find it interesting when you talk about biblical influences on secular works as well. I don't know. I, actually, no, maybe we didn't bring this up in this conversation, but it's definitely something I was thinking about. I personally am making my way through the Harry Potter series right now. I'm on uh, Deathly Hallows, and I find it really interesting that J.K. Rowling even put biblical references in her own book, um, like straight, like straight, like stolen from, not stolen, but straight taken from the Bible itself. In chapter 16, when Harry and Hermione are visiting Godric's Hollow, they find the graves of Dumbledore's mother and sister, as well as his parents. And the inscription on the Dumbledore gravesite is literally says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And like, that's just a straight up biblical reference right there, which made me pause. I was like, huh, that's interesting. It's, and then later they see the potter's graves and it says, and the inscription says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So, and they kind of take it, you know, they take it for the context of the book and like, oh, this is the Death Eaters trying to gain immortality or something like that. Well, no, it's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I have that here in some of the notes I wrote down. That, that, that Rowling is very explicit. She explicitly quotes 1 Corinthians 15 here when she writes, the last enemy shall be destroyed is death. And I love the way that Harry is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <clears throat> what, isn't this a Death Eater idea? And Hermione just says, no, it's not. She, they're, they're talking about something beautiful, something better than death. Um, and, and, you know, this is something that I think a lot of people don't know, um, that, that Rowling herself is a Christian. Um, you know, she's a member of the Church of Scotland. Researching for this for this podcast interview, I, I came across an interview she did in 2002, um, where, where she's actually being asked about making comparisons between her work and Narnia. And um, there's this great moment where I'm just going to read you from the magazine. This is Prospect Magazine in England, where this is kind of the interview they have with her. They, they write, she's a member of the Church of Scotland. And whenever she's asked, she says, I believe in God, not magic. And then they write, in fact, Rowling initially was afraid that if people were aware of her Christian faith, she would give away too much of what's coming in the series. Quote, if I talk too much about that, unquote, she told a Canadian reporter, I think the intelligent reader, whether 10 years old or 60, will be able to guess what is coming in the books. In truth, it's not much harder to find gospel parallels in the Harry Potter stories than in the Chronicles of Narnia. And that's a direct quote from J.K. Rowling. The story truly follows this parallel um, with, with the sacrificial themes at play um, in, in the novel. And it's just it's just beautiful. I mean, it really is. I I, I there's many Christian themes in these stories. Yeah, I'm glad you brought uh, brought up the sacrificial sacrificial nature because um, 
I mean, there's a lot of self-sacrifice in these books. You see uh, Harry, Harry's parents, his mom literally sacrificing all of her magic so that he can be, he can still live. And then you have the whole idea of, you know, the Deathly Hallows and the Resurrection Stone. Like, the Resurrection Stone is, like, not a perfect cheat, at least in the movie. I haven't gotten to this point in the book yet. But in the movie for Deathly Hallows, they talk about how the brother who had the Resurrection Stone brought his love back. But she realized, but she was like, no, I don't belong in this world. And he eventually, and she eventually died again, leading to his ultimate death and, you know, death claiming another of the three brothers. But what I find interesting is that even though Dumbledore gives Harry the resurrection stone inside the snitch right at the end, Harry still chooses not to use it, which I find really cool. Absolutely. Harry Potter Harry himself is certainly held up as as being wise, wise beyond his years um, throughout the story, and and that's certainly an important moment where he is wise not to use that stone in that way. You said something earlier um, that I actually wanted to hit on as well. Uh, it was ta- you were talking about Dumbledore um, and how it was and how he was hiding Harry's fate from him. When I when I initially watched the movies, I thought I thought to myself. Mm, I don't really like Dumbledore as a character because he did because he didn't do this. He didn't tell Harry what his fate was supposed to be. It really it really seemed to paint Dumbledore as not a great character for me, or at least a well written character, just not a great person. And also, you see, how, and in the books, it gets even you get even into even more depth of it. How Dumbledore basically endangered a bunch of children in um, I think it was Order of the Phoenix, where they create Dumbledore's army. And he eventually ends up being like, oh, hey, you know, I created this thing. These kids aren't these kids aren't guilty of anything, which is another which plays into the self-sacrifice thing. Yeah, you know, um, it's kind of been fun. You know, I'm I'm 31. I started reading Harry Potter the year after the first book came out. And every time a new book came out, my mom would take me to the bookstore and we would get it together, you know, the day day of and so you know having followed harry potter mania uh, you know from a, from my youth it's it's been kind of interesting seeing how public sentiment towards the books and particularly towards dumbledore has shifted over the years um and recently i found a lot of people uh be, being very critical of him and, and 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 treating him as if he's an evil and wicked character which i'm just astonished by um and i i, I think I, i'm not totally sure but I think it has to do with how the movies portrayed him, and you know, um, if you want to, if you want to talk to somebody who loves the movies, uh, I have a very varied opinions on the films, and and I particularly am disappointed with some of Dumbledore's characterization in the later films, especially, and this is partly why, because I think that people who are incredibly critical of Dumbledore haven't necessarily read the entirety of of his character arc. Um, and you're not there yet in your story um, or in your reading of the story. But I think I- I'm fine for folks to criticize Dumbledore's actions and deeds. But I think you have to take the, the penultimate chapter of the series, King's Cross, into account for anyone that's going to criticize Dumbledore. Again, totally fine with folks criticizing him. Um, but I really want to point those folks back to King's Cross because um, all of his actions are addressed in this chapter. Um, this is the chapter that, you know, Harry Potter has gone into the woods. He sacrificed himself. He's realized that this is the only way to defeat Voldemort. And he dies and he wakes up and he's in King's Cross Station. And then he and Dumbledore 
have a conversation here. And, and I really think that, you know, we don't have time to read it here, but, but it's worth going back um, and, and rereading this chapter because in this conversation, Dumbledore, he confesses where he was selfish, where he was wrong, where he, where he messed up. He apologizes for it. I mean, he shows deep grief. He weeps. He explains everything to Harry. And, and, and I believe here he, he is actually repentant of, of any failure and wrongdoing that he's done towards Harry. Um, you know, Second Corinthians talks about this idea of, of godly grief versus worldly grief. Uh, godly grief being that which produces repentance. And, and, and here I really believe that Dumbledore, you know, as a character is experiencing this idea of, of godly grief because he is just undone over, over a few things. You know, first of all, the fact that he didn't fully trust Harry, but second of all, also over the fact that Harry had to give up his life at all. And what I love about this chapter, and I think this is something that we struggle to take into account, but it's important, I think, to take into account Harry's view of Dumbledore here. And um, here Harry looks at Dumbledore and, and he just realizes in that moment, you know what? I, I don't even think I can be angry with you. Um, it's this, this lovely moment. And this is right after he's heard Dumbledore's um, entire confession. And, and it's this really beautiful moment. And, and, and you know, I think we we really ought to look at Dumbledore's character arc over the course of all seven books. And, and we have to make the decision, is what Dumbledore doing here wise? Or is what Dumbledore doing here throughout the books reckless and careless? Um, and I think in the end, it is a uh, flawed, broken man doing everything he can to make wise decisions and not necessarily knowing if those decisions would work out, um, who then finds that beyond his wildest dreams, all of what he hoped to happen came true and that Harry did give up his life willingly. And not only that, he then got to go back and be with his friends and family members again. And so my reading of Dumbledore is one of a, of a deeply flawed man but also a man who ultimately sought to do what is right. And, you know, that was, that was certainly accomplished through, through sacrifice and working together. So I don't know if that, if that kind of gets at that question, but. Yeah, no, it does. Um, Cause <clears throat> that was when I watched the movies at first. And then I was like a very cynical Dumbledore hater for a little while. But then as I, as I read the books and then rewatched the movies um, and then had, you know, the books to compare it to, I was like, huh, okay. The books expand on Dumbledore's character in, in several ways, which I think helped me to understand where he was coming from and also his relationship with Harry. In the movies, you see a lot of Dumbledore's characterization become very manipulative of Harry, especially in the Half-Blood Prince when they're trying to take the memories from Slughorn. Like that's in the movies, it feels very manipulative. I, I deeply respect the actor and those who made the movies, but um, I, I think I just disagree with the characterization of of Dumbledore there, um, especially in in those later films. You know, you know, Proverbs fourteen has has this really helpful proverb where it says, "The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving." And so, I think you have to ask the question: Is Dumbledore being prudent here, or is he being deceptive? And I think it's a misread to say he's deceptive. That's the argument I'm going to make. Because in King's Cross, in that chapter, he explains why he limited Harry's understanding. And the reason he did it 
is because Dumbledore recognizes that there's no such thing as a perfect person. And he actually explains that he limited Harry's understanding deliberately so that Harry would not be tempted by the resurrection stone, by the power of the wand, by the power of the invisibility cloak. And so Dumbledore kind of bakes in these, these, gu these guardrails to protect Harry from himself in a lot of ways. Um, and I think, you know, I'm a Christian and my theology of sin is that we, we're all needy, we're all broken, we're, we're, we're all recognized that the world's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, and I think Dumbledore is playing into that. And so perhaps that's also a reason folks who are more, maybe more optimistic about the, the, the nature of, of, of humanity's hearts feel frustrated with Dumbledore, where he doesn't trust Harry entirely. But I, I take that as wisdom and, and actually prudence. Yeah. And it plays in biblically because one of the verses I had written down and one something that I thought related to this topic was Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So within the context of that verse and also within the context of the story itself, you have just a picture, just a picture of like God tells us things that we need to know in the time we need to know them. And Dumbledore kind of did the same thing for Harry is what I started to realize as well. <clears throat> yeah. So in, perhaps, in yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, Deuteronomy 29, they're certainly talking about the giving of God's law to his people. Um, and, and, you know, I think people ask that question a lot of why didn't God give us more? And I think the answer is, well, he gave us what we need. Um, and so, you know, perhaps there is a parallel to be made there that Dumbledore is giving Harry what he needs rather than every single detail. Um, uh, you know, obviously, I'm always hesitant to make one on one to one comparisons between God and characters in, in, in fantasy. But but I think it's definitely point, pointing us to that idea. And so I think that's, you know, that's a good point. So I think I really only have one one last point here I want to hit. One final question. If there are, or what, what Christ figures can we derive from this story just in total as a whole? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I, I, I think, you know, kind of as, as I just said, you have to be careful even when you're looking at like Narnia and Aslan's clear one, like the clear parallels between Aslan and Jesus Christ. I think you still have to be careful and make sure that you're, that you, that you're reading it in a way that, that isn't necessarily helping you understand who Jesus is, but rather pointing you back to the gospel narratives to go learn for yourself more about who Jesus is. Um, that being said, uh, you know, I think it's pretty clear that Harry is meant to be um, in some capacity, give us a parallel to the work of, of Jesus Christ. Um, again, you know, uh, Rowling deliberately is quoting first Corinthians 15 here, where she says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And um, you know, the themes of the entire, the entire series, right. Are death. I think is the, primary theme in Harry Potter, um, but then also sacrifice and love. Voldemort's greatest fear is death and dying. And I actually think that that is his most evil attribute, that, that, that Voldemort is unwilling. It does everything he does, all of the murder, all of the, the diabolical action, everything he does in the story is because he is afraid of dying. And, and, and this is the, the, the sharp contrast with Harry Potter, where, where Harry Potter's terrified of death. Uh, again, go back and read King's Cross, or, or excuse me, the chapter right before it, where Harry realizes that he has to die. He's absolutely terrified, but he recognizes that in order to love his friends well, to care for those he loves the most, death is the only way for them to be 
um, safe and saved. And so I think you certainly get this aspect of, you know, John 15, when Jesus tells his disciples that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I think when you look at Harry Potter, if you're a Christian, you should be reminded of that verse. If you're not a Christian, you might not even know that verse. Um, but, you know, back to my point earlier about why I love fantasy, this is a, a great moment to say, why do you think you are moved to tears when Harry gives up his life for his friends? And, and I think, you you know, that moment, you're, you're, you've got this opportunity to say, you know, it's because sacrifice is something that is hardwired into us as people. We, we long for, you know, they're, they're, we long for restoration and we recognize that the only way for that to happen is for somebody to lay down their life. I think that's kind of a, a hardwired principle in, in our minds. And, and so, you know, Harry is such a juxtaposition of Voldemort and that he willingly lays down his life. He, he, he gives it up for others and he does it out of, out of love. And, and, and even, um, you know, when he's thinking about it, as he's walking to Voldemort, you have this great moment where he's thinking back over all his friends. He's thinking of, you know, he's thinking of Lupin. He's thinking of Tonks. He's thinking of his parents. He's thinking of her, Hermione, Ron, uh, you know, all of them. He's just thinking of all of his friends. Uh, and they are what gives him this kind of courage to go forward with the sacrifice that he knows he, he must do. And so um, I think that's one one place you definitely see some parallels to um, the true story, you know, that, that Jesus Christ came and died and gave up his life for our sin. But then I think you also see a few different connections to, um, you, you'll, you'll see this when you read King's Cross. Um, look for the theme of blood in Harry Potter. Look for that theme because it's really interesting in book four, um, when, when Voldemort comes back, the, the means by which he does it is he has to take the blood of an enemy. Now he could have taken the blood of anybody, but in that moment, he, in his pride, takes Harry's blood. And in book seven, that ends up being the very reason for Harry's ultimate, you know, resurrection at the end of, of the novel, because of the very fact that Voldemort took his blood. And so this theme of blood is really interesting. Um, and I think it does evoke ties to our biblical, you know, the biblical understanding of blood is that blood sa- bloodshed is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Um, and there's not really any blood truly shed in the Harry Potter series. I mean, it's pretty rare when it is because, um, you know, wands don't do blood stuff. But um, when, when Rowling does talk about blood, there's, there's some interesting, I think I'd call them parallels between the respect given to it and, and then the way that blood is ultimately the means by which Harry has victory over Voldemort. And of course, it's blood which is, you know, the very reason why Jesus Christ has victory over sin and, and you know, God's judgment um, for that sin. So I don't know if that helps, but, um, you know, I, I think that Harry Potter is, at its core, a very Christian series. I think it's a little ironic that Christians tried to do away with Harry Potter in its early, early days. But I think I, I have still not met a single Christian who started off hating Harry Potter because of its use of magic, who read the series and then came out on the end, other end saying, I still hate the series. I, I haven't met somebody. Obviously, that's anecdotal. I'm sure there's some people out there who have. But most people who actually sit down and read the stories for themselves find that they're um, really um, delightful stories that, that, that actually point us back to the true story and the longings and hope that we have um, that perhaps um, our sin and sadness can be restored one day, which I believe it will be through, you know, through the work of Jesus Christ and his future return. Every tear will be wiped away.
from our eyes and that that he will set up his eternal kingdom forever and so you know a story like harry potter is a great way to to talk to people who i know who love the stories um but would never ever darken the door of a church or be interested even in talking about jesus so um yeah i don't know if that helps yeah no that's awesome thank you yeah that's about all i got so unless you have anything else you want to add um um I, I mean, nothing to that point. I think we've covered a lot of really good things. And I, I you know, I just, again, um, I, I, it'd probably be good for me to say where some of this is coming from, just in my thinking. Um, some of this is stuff I've reflected on over the years, but then um, there's a really good book that I'd recommend to your listeners. Um, it's called Echoes of Eden by Jerem Bars, B-A-R-R-S, Echoes of Eden. And it actually has a chapter in there on Harry Potter and how we can approach it as Christians. Um, and that chapter is really excellent and I, I commend it. He, he also has chapters on Lord of the Rings, you know, and Shakespeare and a few other um, key kind of fiction and fantasy. Um, but that chapter on Harry Potter, I think is really excellent. And so I recommend Echoes of Eden by Jerem Bars. I just um, wanna make sure I acknowledge that I'm not making all of this up on my own. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. I'll have to check that out myself. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for thanks for coming on. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, such an honor for you to have me. I I, I really enjoyed talking to you, and um, you know, um, it's, it was really fun. I feel smarter already. Thanks for listening, travelers. A special thank you to Caleb for joining me today, and make sure you check out Echoes of Eden if you're interested in learning more. I know I certainly will be. Until next time, stay curious and stay fantastical.